0: before we uh, begin the message, I'd like to teach you the song that I've written. What is faith? And uh, I wrote it here at the Master's College. Lord gave me this song when I was at Master's College. And the, the word goes like this, faith is a gift of God, a means of enjoying grace. Faith is receiving Christ, trusting. In his saving work faith is turning from sin to the righteous way of God faith can please the father it can overcome the world I sing one time for you I invite you to sing it maybe one or two times and then I'll go on with my message okay It is always hard to sing a song before such a wonderful audience who sings so well.
1: (laughs) It goes like this. Faith is a gift of God, a means of enjoying grace. Faith is receiving Christ, trusting in his saving work. Faith is turning from sin. To the righteous way of God, faith can please the Father, it can overcome the world. Like my song? (laughs) Thank Thank
0: you. Thank you. Well, let's sing it together one time. (laughs)
1: Okay, shall we? Faith is a gift of God, a means of enjoying grace. Faith is receiving Christ, trusting in his saving work. Faith is turning from sin to the righteous way of God faith can please the Father He can overcome the world Okay, We'll sing it later on (laughs) The Bible
0: faculty series this spring focuses on the book of Revelation more specifically It concentrates on Christ's letters to the church at Ephesus and the church at Philadelphia. On Monday, Dr. Hutchison preached on Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus, and he did a great job. This morning, I will expound on Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia. Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia is found in Revelation 3, 7-13, which reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The flow of Christ's letter above can be traced as follows. One, an address to the angel of the church, 37a. Two, a fourfold description of Christ who speaks to the church. Three seven B Three. A claim of Christ to complete knowledge of the church. Three8 through10. Four. An exhortation of Christ to the church. 3:11. Five. A, compromise, a, a, a promise of Christ to the overcomer in the church. 3:12. Six. A command of Christ to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's take a closer look at these main points and draw from them some lessons to learn about the church. First, the letter begins with an address to the angel of the church, as 37A states, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. This brief statement raises four questions. What should we know about the city of Philadelphia? What is a local church? What is the meaning of angel? And to whom was the letter in 3.7 really written? Answer. Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities in Revelation 2 and 3. Founded in the second century B.C. by Attalus II Philadelphos, one of the kings of Pergamon. Philadelphia was the city of brotherly love, a city full of earthquakes and the gateway to the east. What then is a local church? A local church is a group of professed believers in Christ who gather together in His name to perform God's will as revealed in Scripture, such as worship, Bible teaching, discipleship, fellowship, practicing the Lord's Supper, prayer, acts of mercy, and evangelism. What then is the meaning of angel? There are two main explanations. Some say he is a celestial angel, and others say he is a human messenger. Which of these explanations is more probable? The human messenger view is more probable for four reasons. First, the Greek word for angel can refer to a man, just as well as to a heavenly being. Second, Scripture is silent about angels in charge over churches, while men are spoken of as leaders over churches. Third, other New Testament letters are written to people, not to an angel to give to people. Fourth, It is very natural to see how a man would deliver a book to a church. It is not easy to see how an angel would do so. The letter in Revelation 3-7 then was written to a human leader of a group of believers in the historic church of the city of Philadelphia who gathered together in Jesus' name to do God's will. The statement and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, is followed by a fourfold description of Christ who speaks to the church. The second point of the letter. This point is found in verse 7b, which reads, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. The text above says four things about Christ. He is holy, he is true, he has the key of David, and he opens, and no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens. First, Christ is holy. In what sense is Christ holy? Answer, the word holy means set apart. Christ is holy in that he is set apart to live in consistency with his own attributes. His attributes include omnipotence, eternity, immutability, veracity, and righteousness. Christ is not only holy, he is also true. In what sense is he true? Answer. The word true can mean genuine trustworthy, or faithful as distinguished from false, spurious, or unfaithful. In accord with this meaning, the word is used of the true God in contrast to the empty delusion of false gods or idols. The true God has trustworthiness to the infinite degree, idols do not. They are only the false objects of devotion, in a heart diseased by sin and its delusions. But the word true can also mean eternal, heavenly, and divine, as distinguished from human and earthly only. In this sense, the word true signifies the highest, the finest, the most ideal realization, the complete in contrast to the incomplete, The perfect is distinct from the imperfect. Christ is true then in that he is the true one, namely the highest, finest, greatest, the perfect ideal, superlative, and most ultimate example of what true can be. In John's writings, the word true is used often of Jesus. He is the true light the true bread from heaven, the true vine, and the true God. Christ is not only holy and true, being set apart to live in consistency with his own attributes. And the most ultimate example of what true can be, he also has the key of David. What is meant by he has the key of David? Answer. The key of David refers to the Messianic rights and authority in the dynasty of David to occupy the throne of David and to rule as God had promised. That Jesus Christ is the key of David then means that he has the Messianic rights and authority in the dynasty of David to occupy the throne of David and to rule as God had promised in 2 Samuel 7.16 meaning of has the key of David is further explained by the next description of Christ in verse 7, he opens and no man shuts, and he shuts and no man opens. This description shows that Christ not only has the authority to occupy David's throne, he also controls the entrance to the messianic kingdom and has supreme power in the messianic kingdom. What Christ is able to do cannot be reversed by men. Nothing, and nobody can undo the work of Christ. The fourfold description of Christ above is followed by a claim of Christ to complete knowledge of the church. This point is the third point of the letter. And it, it begins with verse 8. First, Jesus say, I know In Greek, the word I know is a perfect tense verb, meaning I have known and I do know. Christ knew in the past. He knows now. He always knows. His knowledge of the church is complete, ongoing, and unbroken. But what does Christ know? In verse 8, Christ says, I know your deeds. The word deeds is a plural word, referring to the works of those in the church as a whole, everybody. Yes, the law knows every effort that has been made for him. But what does the law know most specifically? In 3 eight, Jesus specifies, he says, you have a little power. The power here includes main power, economic power, and social standing in the community. You have a little power suggest that the church at Philadelphia was small in number. It was not a heavyweight church. Its appearance was not spectacular. Not many of its members were wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. Not many influential in the strength or the size category. It was not significantly impressive but the church was strong in Christ and faithful to Him. In verse 8, the Lord not only says you have a little power, He also says you have kept my word and, and have not denied my name. What can we say about this statement that has both positive and negative expressions? First, to keep Christ's word is to obey his truth and to stand for that which is true. The expression, you have kept my word, recurs later in 310, where Jesus refers to his word as the word of my perseverance. This means that the church at Philadelphia not only kept Jesus' word, she also imitated Jesus' patience. She had paid the price of patience for keeping Jesus' word. Furthermore, she had not denied Jesus' name. To not deny Jesus' name means that the church boldly, openly acknowledged and confessed Jesus. She embraced Jesus, honored him, loved him dearly, valued him highly, treated him as important, was loyal to and committed to him, and was willing to suffer for his name's sake. Because the church at Philadelphia had kept Jesus' word and not denied his name, Jesus says to her, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. To what does the open door, which no man can shut, refer? There are two basic views. Some interpreters say the open door refers to the door of further opportunity in witness. Christ will open doors of further opportunity in witness for the church in Philadelphia. This view is supported by the fact that the New Testament uses the figure of open door for entry to extend the gospel. However, the New Testament uses the figure of open door also to refer to an entryway into a place or a state. So other interpreters say the open door is the door of the future kingdom. Christ will open the door of the future kingdom to his own. Only those with true righteousness may enter the kingdom. The second view is better for two reasons. First, the reference to an open door goes back to verse 7, where Jesus controls the key of the future kingdom. Second, the fact that no man can shut the door implies opposition. Hostile Jews wanting to shut the door of the kingdom to Gentiles. But Christ has opened the door, and no one can shut it. Because the church at Philadelphia had kept Jesus' word and not denied his name, Christ not only said, Behold, I have put before you an open door. He also says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lying. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. This verse of Scripture invites special attention by repeating the word behold twice and shows that the church not only was small, she also had enemies. These enemies claimed that they were Jews, but they were not. Who are those who say they are Jews and are not? Answer. They are literal physical Jews who have seeming credibility in their claim as Jews, but they are not Jews in the spiritual sense, inwardly by heart circumcision. How then are the Jews a synagogue of Satan? Answer they are a synagogue of satan in the sense of John 8:44 in John 8:44 Jesus says to the unbelieving Jews you are of your father the devil and the works of your father you will do so the synagogue of philadelphia is referred to as a synagogue of satan not because it is jewish but because it is doing the works of Satan, namely being hostile to Christians. When would it come to pass that the synagogue of Satan bows down and knows that Christ loved the believers in Philadelphia? It will take place at the future realization of the kingdom, when these enemies will be subdued and kneel before the Lord and the saved. In Revelation 3.10, the Lord continues with his assurance, he says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. In this verse, Christ promises to keep the church from the hour of trial which is about to come, because the church has kept the word of his perseverance. Two things are clear here. One, the trials in 310 is not local, but universal. Two, the trial is not for the church, but for those who dwell on the earth. What is not immediately clear is the meaning of the expression I will keep you from the hour of trial and the identity of those who dwell upon the earth. What then is meant by I will keep you from the hour of trial? Answer first, the words I will keep you from more precisely mean I will keep you out from. This meaning is recognized in Bauer, and Danker's New Testament lexical listing. Thayer's lexicons says the Greek expression to keep out from means to keep one at a distance from. Second, the hour of trial refers to Israel's 70th week, namely the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation period. Jesus speaks of the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, and the book of Revelation develops it in chapter 6 through 19. I will keep you from the hour of testing, then, means I will keep you out from the Great Tribulation period. This provokes a question How will Christ keep the church out from the hour of trial? One textual clue. The answers to this question is found in Revelation 3.11. Here the Lord says, I am coming quickly. This expression fits well with I will keep you in Revelation 3.10. It would seem that Christ means that he will keep his church out from the hour of trial when he comes to rapture her before the great tribulation period. This explanation is supported by three contextual clues. First, the saints in Revelation 6-18 through are never called the churches or the church of a certain area as in Revelation 2 and 3. One possible reason for this is that the church will no longer be present on earth in the tribulation. If the church is present on earth in the tribulation, why this difference? between chapters 2 and 3, and chapters 6 through 18. Second, in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, Christ's bride, the church, is seen in heaven already with Christ before his second coming at the end of the tribulation. This indicates that the rapture will have already taken place. Third, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, predicts that the rapture of the church must occur before the appearance of the Antichrist. And at the outset of the Great Tribulation in Revelation 6-2, the Antichrist will have appeared. This negates the possibility that the church will be in the Great Tribulation. The contextual clues mentioned above reinforce the above explanation that Christ will keep the church by a pre tribulation rapture, indeed, as God delivered Lot from the trials by taking him out of Sodom, so he will deliver the church from the hour of trial by keeping her out of it. So yes, all of the truly saved in the church will be kept out of the future tribulation period as a man is kept out of a burning apartment building. Who then are those who dwell on the earth for whom the hour of trial is intended? In Revelation chapter 6 through 17, those who dwell on the earth refers to God's human enemies who murder the martyrs, worship the beast, and get drunk on the harlot's wine. Let us turn our attention to the fourth point of the letter an exhortation of Christ to the church. In Revelation 3.11, the Lord gives His exhortation, saying, I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. This verse implies that if one should succumb and stop holding fast to what he had, he would forfeit his crown. This implication raises two questions. What does Christ mean by the crown? How and in what sense could a man take another crown? Answer, first by the crown, Jesus means the crown which consists of eternal life in its full potential. Christ specified this earlier in Revelation 2.10. There, he promised this crown to those who trust him in faith that results in faithfulness. Second, negatively, a man could take another's crown, not in the sense of taking it for himself. For nowhere else in the New Testament does one individual receive the salvation or the reward previously intended for and belonging to another. Positively, a man could take another's crown in the sense of preventing him from obtaining the crown, by leading, intimidating, or enticing him into compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil, into a life of denying Christ's name and his word. In the New Testament, false teachers diverted many from committing themselves in true faith, and then from living the life of faith that leads on to the crown. In the immediate context of Revelation 3.11, hostile Jews, the synagogue of Satan, wants to shut the door of the kingdom to Gentiles. But true believers will heed the exhortation of 3.11 to hold fast to what they have. They will persevere. They will not turn away from the things Christ caused them to face steadfastly. Others who have only a professed relationship with Christ and His Church will be kept from that true, from what true faith brings by their enemies. In practical life situations, a marathon runner who lets a man in a car entice him to hop upon a running board and ride parts of the race permits the driver to take the medal that he might have received when the race was finished. In 1972, the best U.S. Olympic sprinter, Eddie Hart, had his crown stolen by someone who gave him a false schedule. He missed his trial run and was disqualified for the race. In his absence, the Russian won the 100-meter meter dash. But later on in the games, Eddie Hart and the Russian each won the last leg of the 400-meter relay. Eddie Hart won by a half of a yard, and everyone knew who was the fastest man on earth. Eddie Hart had regained his lost crown. He had been given a second chance. But the man in Revelation 3.11 will not have a second chance. He has no genuine persevering faith unto salvation. He will not have a crown to regain. This clears the way for the fifth point of the letter, a promise of Christ to the overcomer in the church. In Revelation 3.12, Christ gives his promise. He says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven for my God and my new name. The text above begins with the expression, He who overcomes. Who is he who overcomes? Answer, he is every truly saved person. Why? First, the expression he who overcomes appears 15 times elsewhere in John's writings as a description of all born-again persons. For example, in 1 John 5.5, the apostle John asks, who is he that overcomes the world? He answers the question. He that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Second, in the immediate context before 312, he who overcomes is one who has kept Christ's word and not denied his name. This fits with every say person. Third, In the immediate context after Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes is one who hears and obeys what the spirits say to the churches. This characteristic of hearing and obeying is true of all believers. Throughout the book of Revelation, obedience to God's word marks all who are genuinely born again. Elsewhere in John's writings, The person who does not obey God's word is not a Christian. By contrast, the genuine sheep hear and follow Christ in an ongoing way. In Revelation 3.12, Christ promises that he will make the overcomer a pillar in God's temple. This promise raises two questions. One, Is the temple real? Two, what is the nature of the pillar? Answers. First, the temple is real. It is real in the spiritual realm. Revelation chapter 21 verse 22 tells us that in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple of stone or wood. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The overcomer will become a part of the temple. He will have a place in the spiritual temple. He will abide in God just as he abides in Christ now. God is the overcomer's truest dwelling place. Second, the pillar is not literal. It is a symbol to help us visualize by analogy and grasp the spiritual reality. This is like the figurative concept of Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. In these two passages, believers are stones in a holy temple, a spiritual house of the present age. The stones in temple do not mean literal stones in temple. They are a graphic picture of believers. It is true that believers will have glorified bodies that are literal, yet of incorruptible substance. And each believer will be a pillar. But the pillar is not literal, unlike Lot's wife, who became a pillar of salt. What then is the spiritual reality the pillar is portraying? What would it mean to be a pillar? There are two main possibilities. Either of them is wonderful. One possibility is that the pillar will be a symbol of the overcomer's importance, and that any overcomer will loom as important in God's dwelling place. This is as James, Sipha, St. John were esteemed pillars among the churches in Galatians 2.9. All believers, likewise, could be portrayed as pillars just from the perspective of their eternal honor. All of the redeemed are destined for honor. But the pillar can also be interpreted as a symbol of the overcomer's absolute security. This interpretation is more probable for three reasons. First, Security is the point in the very next statements in Revelation 3.12. The point in the next statements in 3.12 is that the overcomer will never again go out. He will never be excluded from the temple. The Greek text puts a special stress on this. It uses a double negative. He will never again go out. We see the same double negative in our Lord's promise of John 10, 28, which reads, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall by no means ever perish. Second, the pledge of security that the overcomer will by no means ever go out from the temple would have been comforting to the believers of Philadelphia. Several earthquakes had dislodged the citizens of Philadelphia, causing them to flee to the countryside to find temporary abodes. Third, Christ may be forming a contrast in Revelation 3.12. The contrast is people go out of temples in the present life, but the overcomer will never go out of his temple. He will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This prospect of being a pillar, then, is that of unbudging security. Christ will not only establish the overcomer as a pillar in God's temple, but he will also associate the overcomer with himself by writing three names on the overcomer. What are the names he writes on the overcomer? First, he will write the name of my God. What could this name be? It could be, "The Lord is our righteousness," as God promises in Jeremiah 33:16. Jeremiah 33:16 says, "In the kingdom age, Judah shall be saved, Jerusalem shall dwell in safety, and the Lord is our righteousness is the name by which God's people shall be called." So the name could be, "The Lord is our righteousness." But this cannot be confirmed. Because Revelation 3.12 does not say what the name is. Whatever the name, however, it definitely stands for the full multiplicity of the glories of God himself is to each overcomer. The believers of old exalted, God is my portion. And God in all his name suggests Is the blessing the overcomer's heart will forever celebrate. Second, Jesus write the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. This name is easier to discern. For the last phrase of the description here in Revelation 3.12 connects the name with Revelation 21 verse 2 and 21 verse 9. Those verses show that the name of God's city is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The bride, in the last chapters of Revelation, is a destination for the abode of all the winners. And in Revelation 19.7, the bride is made up of all the citizens of that city. Elsewhere in the New Testament, all believers in Christ already have citizenship in heaven now. They will be granted access into the New Jerusalem then. And they will delight in and enjoy the benefits of citizenship there for all eternity. In the present life, a husband deeply related to the wife he adores, rejoices to call her his bride, his wife. As Isaiah said long ago in 62.5, Christ will be jubilant over his people as a bridegroom exalts over his bride. People of America's Philadelphia were overjoyed when the Phillies won the World Series in 1981. Fans in dollars turned out by the thousands in 1996 to celebrate the Cowboys Super Bowl championship. Yes, being citizens of a city can stir men to jubilation, but the greatest joy that can fill winners' hearts is yet ahead, and only for Christ's winners. All the overcomers will celebrate what it means to bear the name of God's eternal city. Third, Jesus will write my new name. Again, he does not tell us what the name is. Possibly, Christ's new name is that of Revelation 19:12, a name which no one knows except himself. This is the name that no one has power over. It is also the name that is consistent with Christ's person, his work, and his character. And the overcomer bears that name because he is forever identified with his person and work and has the marks of his character. What then is the significance of Christ writing these three names on the overcomer? Answer. Writing the names is probably the Lord's way of drawing attention to his laying final claim to his Purchase purchased possession of Ephesians 1.13. Christ claims possession of all his people now, so why not in the future? To possess the names, then, is tantamount to identifying forever with and belonging to God, the city of God, the Son of God, and all that is consistent with their names. At this point, you might be curious and ask, Dr. Wong, does the writing of a name mean a name marked literally on the overcomer as the name of the beast marked on unbelievers? The answer is not necessarily. Why? If the name of the beast is literal, literally plays on unbelievers, that is, in the earthly realm and life, Christ's promise to the overcomer relates to ultimate things beyond this swim and life. For God to write the believer's name in the book of life does not require a literal book. So for him to write his name in a person does not require it to be done literally. Let us look at the final point of the letter. A command of Christ to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to the church at Philadelphia closes with a command to hear in 313, which reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This statement shows us three things. One, though this letter was written to the church at Philadelphia, it has application to all of the churches. Two. What Christ says to the churches is what the Spirit says to the churches. Three, all who can hear should listen to this message from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Let us conclude this message. The church of Philadelphia had kept the word and propagated it. Though of little power, the church had resisted false teachers and not denied the Lord's name. Because of her faithfulness, Christ promised to set before her an open door to cause the enemies to bow down at her feet and to keep her from the hour of trial which will come on the whole earth. Christ also exhorted her to hold fast what he, she had in order that no one would take her crown. Christ seems to be pleased with the spiritual condition of this church. For no direct threats of judgment is given here nor is anything bad said about her. There is, however, an implication that if one should succumb and stop keeping the word, the benefits promised would be forfeited. The benefits for the overcomer include the rapture, eternal life in its final realization, permanent security in eternity, and the privilege of forever belonging to God and identify with him, the city of God, the son of God, and all that is consistent with their names. These benefits are true of all believers. Only the unsaved will not receive them. This leads to the final question. What are some lessons to learn about the Church, from Christ's letter to the Philadelphians. The emphasis of this week. There are five lessons. First, the Church must be holy and true, because Christ is holy and true. Christ is holy in life and character, and true in word and action. The Church must likewise be holy in life and character, and be true in word and action. 1 Peter 1.15 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Second, the church must fear Christ, submit to Christ, be loyal to Christ, and worship Christ, because Christ is the King. He has messianic rights and authority in the dynasty of David to occupy the throne of David and to rule in the messianic kingdom. Third, the church will always encounter satanic opposition when it faithfully stands for Christ. A commendable church is one that relentlessly resists temptation into unholiness in denying the Lord's name and his word. Today the church is tempted to abandon the book of Genesis to science, to abandon salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ to secular anthropology, to abandon the Christian life through the spirit taught in the word of God to modern psychology. To abandon opposite sex marriage to same sex marriage. The church today must relentlessly resist these and any other temptations. The church must keep Christ's word with his patience. Fourth, the church must remember that Christ has complete knowledge of her, that he knows her needs, her deeds her difficulties, and that he will help her, meet her needs, vindicate her, open the door of the future kingdom to her, and reward her according to the degree of her faithfulness. Fifth, the church has eternal security and sufficiency. Christ has loved her. Christ will keep save the church that has kept his word Christ will write His name on those in the church who have not denied His name. Christ will strengthen the church that has little strength. He will keep the church out from the Great Tribulation period by a pre-tribulation rapture. Let the church be encouraged and often thank God for these blessings. Finally there are a few personal points to ponder first are you a winner second do you keep christ's word and honor his name do you hear and obey what the spirit says to the churches do you live the life of faith that leads on to the crown or do you let the world the flesh and the devil prevent you from obtaining the crown Third, are you anticipating Christ's coming? Are you waiting for God's Son from heaven? In Revelation three eleven, Jesus says, "I am coming quickly." Let's pray. Father, please keep us. Please help us to take Revelation three seven through 13 as a letter to us individually to be rich in good works loyal to your word and unashamed of your name to enter the door you provide to persevere in present troubles and to eagerly anticipate the great reward you have promised to the overcomers in jesus Precious name. Amen.